Get your Bibles open. We're working through our series on Remarkable. We're in Mark chapter 11 this morning. I want to talk about a counterfeit kingdom. But before I do that, I want to go back to a passage of Scripture. This is not on your screen, so get your Bibles out. It's Isaiah chapter 55, 8 and 9. It's a good reminder. My thoughts, God says, are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. I'm going to say that one again. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. What an incredible passage of Scripture. It should keep us humble before the Lord. Amen? Because as soon as we think we got it all figured out, the Lord just reminds us, ah, it's not really the way I see that situation. That's not really... Uh, my definition of love. My definition of love is a little wider than yours. Anybody ever been challenged by the Lord to love more, to go deeper, to be hungry for God, to change your thinking? You know, Jesus was always preaching on the kingdom of God. In fact, at the 40 days after his uh, resurrection from the grave, what did he talk about? The kingdom of God. What was he talking about last week in Mark chapter 10? He was talking about the kingdom of God. He was constantly challenging the disciples that their thinking needs to catch up with his thinking because there's a wide gulf between the two. Let me give you an example. You know, in Pastor Andrew's uh, message last week, he covered the situation where, uh, on divorce and remarriage. And Jesus was telling him, look, yes, you have a certificate of divorce. Yes, you can divorce your, your spouse. Of course, they were divorcing spouses for next to no reason at all. But Jesus said the whole reason Moses gave you this concession was because of the hardness of your hearts. That's not what God intended. I mean, you know, God's for covenant relationships, and God's for reconciliation, and God's for healing. Can I get an amen? So, so, so Jesus is saying, you got it all wrong again. You're not thinking God's ways. You're becoming legalist. You're becoming religious legalist, hard-hearted legalist. And then came the situation of the children. Remember, the disciples are like, let's get, get away. Get these kids away from Jesus. Jesus is too important for these kids. But how many of you know Jesus said, kids are not a bother. Kids are a blessing. Let these kids come. In fact, I love, I love the way Mark adds this little personal element. Mark writes, he took the children, Jesus took the children into his arms. He placed his hands on their heads, and he blessed them. Can't you just picture the beauty of Jesus? There he is kneeling down, all these little kids running up. He's, he's not too busy. He's hugging them. He's touching them. He's blessing them. They're not a bother to him. They're a blessing. And the disciples are getting their minds blown once again. They went for marriage. Now he's talking about kids. And then, remember, he encounters the rich young ruler, and he talks about what true riches are. Jesus says, riches are not about chasing after material things. Whoever has the most toys wins. He said, riches are really about me, and it's about a relationship with me. And he invites the rich young ruler to give up everything that he has to gain all of it and more. Because when you gain Jesus, you gain it all. But the rich young ruler couldn't see the kingdom, and he couldn't understand the invitation that Jesus just gave him. And you remember after this, the story of the rich young ruler, the disciples are so frustrated. Here's what happened. They questioned whether anybody could be saved. How can anybody be saved? So I want you to see the, where the frustration came from. Jesus challenged them on marriage. Jesus challenged them on kids. Jesus challenged them on material things. And their conclusion was, how can anybody be saved? And I love it because Jesus said, well, good point. Humanly speaking, Jesus said, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. So Jesus just said, you guys are right. You're so far from me, so far from my way, so far from my kingdom, so far from my heart. It is impossible except for me. 
Everything with me is possible. But can you see where they came? They're frustrated because Jesus keeps challenging their low thinking, and he keeps elevating them to a higher level. And I want you to see what else happens. Jesus is talking about what true greatness is. And you remember the disciples were arguing about who gets to sit on Jesus' right hand and who gets to sit on Jesus' left hand. And Jesus asked them a powerful question. He says, are you able to drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? And what did the disciples say? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, again, they are clueless. They have no idea the agony and the suffering that is awaiting Christ. But when it comes to that, they're able. But when it comes to loving their spouse, loving their kids, and loving true riches, they don't know how that anybody could possibly do that. But when it comes to suffering for Christ, they're more than able. And Jesus is, is again, just thinking, your ways are not my ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Uh, you are not able. And so that kind of leads us up to Mark chapter 11. And I want to start reading in verse 1. And I want to talk about a counterfeit kingdom. It says, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of them on ahead. He said, go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied, uh, tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord has need of it, or the Lord needs it, and he will return it soon. Verse 4, the two disciples left, and they found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door, just as Jesus said it would be. And as they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. And then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. And it says, many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Others spread leafy branches uh, that they had cut from the fields. And Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Hosanna, it says in the King James, or praise God. They were making a declaration of worship. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God, or Hosanna, in the highest heaven. Now, this event, of course, we know as a triumphal entry. And what's interesting about Mark's gospel is the whole last third of his gospel focuses on just one week in Jesus' life, Passion Week. So we go from the whole story of Jesus ramps up to his entrance into Jerusalem and Passion Week, and the whole remaining part, about a third of Mark's gospel, is all uh, taking place in one week's time. Of course, this triumphal entry is incredibly important, all four of the gospel writers included. And here Jesus is, as he's literally coming into Jerusalem, he's coming in on Passover, and the day he's coming in prophetically is the day when people are getting their, their animals ready for sacrifice. They're picking out the perfect lamb that's going to be offered as a sacrifice, and here Jesus Christ, God's perfect lamb, is entering the city, all right? It is an incredible prophetic happening. And I ask you again, by way of review, why is Jesus in Jerusalem? What is his plan there? What's his purpose for showing up at this particular time in, uh, in Jerusalem? Go back to Mark chapter 10, because Jesus in verse 33 clearly tells us why. He says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. They will hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him. They will spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him, and after three days, he's going to rise again. Now, how many of you know Jesus was clear about his intention? What's going to happen in the city? Here's the short version. He's going to be murdered, but he's going to raise three days later, but he's going to be murdered. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be murdered. 
Why is he going to be murdered? In verse 45 of, of Mark 10, he tells us, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the mission of Jesus. Aren't you glad? To give his life, not to be served, but to serve us by laying down his life so that we could be ransomed, we could be purchased back to God. We could be purchased by the blood of Christ, our sins covered, justified by faith in Christ. We can come into right standing with God. So how many of you know they understand this, right? They understand Jesus is a real king. Because Jesus tells this amazing story about going and getting this colt. And he basically says, tell them that the Lord has need of it. What Jesus is invoking is a kingly privilege in those days. When a king had a need, he would go into a city, and if, and if he needed what you had, it was customary for him to go up and say, hey, Scott, I need to borrow your uh, tractor. Uh, and you know what? You're subject to the king. You say, king, take my tractor. And he says, I'll bring it back when I'm done. You go, it, it's yours, because how many of you know that's the nature of the kingdom and the king? When Jesus becomes king of your life, what does he have access to? everything. Lord, what do you need? What would you like me to do? How can I serve you? My house is yours. My family is yours. My money is yours. My bank account's yours. Lord, what do you need? How I many you know that's the proper response to a king? And so Jesus is acting like a king. And the results are kingly results because there's no questioning the king has need of it, all right? I want you to see something else that is absolutely stunning that points to the fact that Jesus is a real king. He's the Messiah. It's the biblical prophecy that's fulfilled in this act. 500 years before Jesus asked for this donkey's colt, it was prophesied in the, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. This is what it said. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, and yet he is humble. He's riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Matthew's gospel says this took place to fulfill prophecy. Now, this is awesome. This whole entire week and what's happening as Jesus enters the city is literally the fulfillment of words that have been spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by prophets 500 years before this happens, testifying that Jesus Christ is the one who's fulfilling that prophecy. Now, how many know you can't make this stuff up if you're just a human being? And when you look at the combined prophetic body of truth in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus in the New Testament, if you're here today or you're listening online, you're wondering, why should I worship Jesus and is he really the king? Just look at the Old Testament witness of who Christ was and the prophetic words that came forward and ask yourself this question, how could any one person in their lifetime fulfill all of those unique expressions of the prophetic messianic prophecies leading and pointing to Christ? The answer is it's a miracle and it's a miracle of God. Jesus comes in humility, not in a royal display of pomp and power. He doesn't come to reign, at least not at that moment, but he comes to die. He comes not as sovereign royalty, but rather as the suffering servant and the savior of mankind. Now, this is what's incredible to me. If you, if you think about all the times in the Bible when Jesus did a miracle and then he would tell them, don't tell anybody. Did any of you ever wonder, like, why did he say that? Like, go tell everybody. But Jesus would do this incredible miracle, and he would tell the person, don't say anything. Just wait. Don't let the word out. Why? 
Well, because if his popularity spread too fast too soon, it would not be according to the timing that the Father had preordained for it to happen. But how many of you know when he's coming into Jerusalem, he's not telling the crowd, stop. In fact, he says, if you guys don't cry out, the rocks are going to cry out. In other words, he, he is welcoming the praise and the adulation and the worship that's coming his way at that moment because here's why. All of human history is coming to a divine climax in this week in Jerusalem. And Jesus is in charge of it all. How many of you know the word providence speaks of God's superintending, his ordering of human events in human history, which means how many of you believe he's ordering the steps of your life even now? Okay, good. Two of you believe that. Let's try that again. How many of you believe God is ordering the steps of your life even now? In other words, there are, there are no accidents that happen. God is ruling over history. And the cool thing is when you submit your life to him, it doesn't mean you turn into a robot. It means you partner with the Lord. But the confidence is that God's hand is on my life. I've given my life to Christ. How about you? I've submitted my life to him. I've given my, everything I own belongs to him. And so when I wake up in the morning, I'm not fretting the details. I believe God's hand is on my life and is on your life. And it's on the life of our church. It's on the life of the team that we just prayed for. I mean, you know, we're launching them into the sovereign providence of God over the course of human history. And I just think God's setting them up for some amazing stuff that's going to happen. But Jesus is literally stepping into this mob. And I want to show you what's happening here. During the Passover time, it is estimated that a, 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 around 2 million people converged on the city of Jerusalem. You know, this is a massive celebration that's taking place. It's also a, a, re requiring an escalation of Roman troops. There's Roman troops everywhere because their job is to make sure that they keep the peace. And so this is a powder keg situation. But what I want you to see is they had the right king, but they got the wrong kingdom. Again, the, the Jesus has to correct their thinking. They're shouting Hosanna, which means save now. All right? Save now. Have you ever been in a hurry and wanted the Lord to do something now? Like, how about the now campaign? I, want that, <laughs> I, I wanted that building done like two years ago. It would have been great. Like, do it now, Lord, but we're still working, all right? Sometimes the Lord's timing is not the same as our timing. They are wanting Jesus now as Messiah to come riding in like a conquering king and to kick the Romans' tails and, and to uh, break the power of the Roman government off of, off of Israel and off of God's people. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a military campaign. They're looking for a fight. In fact, I, it, Matthew tells us the entire city is in an uproar. And I call this the rally against Rome. You know, we got a lot of people protesting all kinds of things. I could just see the rally against Rome, everybody lining up to make their way in. Uh, and, and really, at this point, there's a mob surrounding Jesus. Uh, it's chaotic. It's crazy. They're also quoting Psalm 118, which is called uh, uh, the Conqueror's Psalm. It, it was attached to the Maccabean Revolt. And so in their minds, they're believing Jesus is coming now to take care of business. So what this is is a counterfeit coronation for an authentic king. Because how many of you know it's only a week later, at the end of the week, the same mob that's cheering Hosanna is shouting crucify him. And can I just encourage all of us? It's not the greatest thing to get involved in mobs. It usually doesn't end well, mob-like behavior, all right? So don't get in the frenzy of whatever the latest stuff's going on in your culture, whatever the mob behavior is. 
stay centered on Christ and stay centered on what he's doing and, and stay centered in moving in humility. Move in boldness, but move in humility at the same time. Amen? So here they want Jesus to come. They want Jesus to bring about uh, a, a earthly political military deliverance. They're throwing their clothes on the ground as a sign of submission. Uh, and I want you to see what happens as Jesus is riding in and Luke tells us he's weeping. Why is Jesus weeping? Because he recognizes that they are going to completely miss the purpose of his visit. He's coming to town to be murdered for the sins of the world and to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world, and they think he's coming for a coronation for a king. Jesus is weeping because he sees ahead and he realizes the judgment that's going to fall on Jerusalem and the slaughter that's going to take place years later uh, uh, when, the, when the Romans come in and, and slaughter most of Jerusalem, millions of people killed. So let's take a look at what Jesus does. It says when Jesus, verse 11, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, he doesn't go to the Roman garrison as they expected. He goes to the temple instead. And after looking around, the Bible says carefully at everything, he leaves because it was late in the afternoon. And then he returns to Bethany with the 12. Now, this is the most anticlimactic response possible from Jesus. First of all, they want him to go in and go straight after the Roman uh, garrison and take them on. Instead, he makes a turn to the opposite direction and heads to the temple. When he gets in the temple, the Bible just says he just scouts it out. He just looks. He sees what's going on. And then he goes home. That's, that, that could be the most anticlimactic ending imaginable, but that's exactly what Jesus does. And I want you to see what happens the next morning. Look with me at verse 15. I'm covering a lot of scripture here, but we're going to unpack it. Look at verse 15. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, the very next day, Jesus enters the temple, and he begins to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, quoting Isaiah 56. But you have turned it into a den of thieves, quoting the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And look at the response of the religious community. When the leading priests and teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And then look at verse 19. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. Now, our church has been called a political church, uh, you all know that. And the reason we get called a political church is we just believe Jesus is Lord over government. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and so, for instance, why do we have somebody coming up this week to tell us what's going on at the State House? Because how many of you know we're a Republican form of government, which means the government serves us, represents us, which means we have a stewardship issue. We want to make sure that righteousness is promoted in the halls of our State House and in Washington. Can I get an amen? So... <laughs> We're really not a political church. We're a kingdom church. We believe Jesus is Lord of all. But I want you to see something really powerful here. Everybody wanted Jesus to go to Washington and take care of business. But Jesus showed up at the church. Jesus' focus wasn't on earthly powers as if we just fix and tweak things there. Everything's going to be great. Jesus understands that if his church is moving in counterfeit realities, counterfeit kingdom, it doesn't really matter what happens out there because as the church goes, so goes the world. I want you guys to hear this. As the church goes, so goes the world. 
If we don't do our job in terms of creating a house of prayer for all nations, creating a place where God's presence is welcome, if we're not involved in doing what Jesus is doing with pure hearts, it really doesn't matter who we elect to Congress. Please hear me. And you all are knowing, you're hearing this from a pastor who cares deeply about government and public policy. And I'm telling you, it's not Jesus' primary concern. Jesus' primary concern is his church. He cares about the kind of worship that's coming off the hearts of his people. Remember, he cares whether, whether we're worshiping with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. How many know he cares about our marriages? He cares about our family. He cares about our resources. He cares about our stewardship. He cares about the nations of the world. You know, people say, well, why would we send a, a, a group of people to the Ukraine? Well, because there's hurting people on the midst of a cultural crisis, and most people don't want to go there with a 10-foot pole. But Jesus' people go where nobody else wants to go because Jesus is always on the cutting edge of broken and hurting people. And because we believe that our lives are immortal until Jesus says they're done, we're willing to just act like Jesus and be bold like Jesus and care for people like Jesus because we believe he's in charge which is why he wants us to move in faith and he wants us to take ground and he wants us to preach the gospel and care for people and just to keep believing that he's big enough to do what he said he would do. That's his church. And listen, people in, on planet earth are looking for what God's like. They're starving for the glory of God. They're starving for a people that are different a people who have encountered Christ, a people who love the Lord, a people who understand this is not the end game. Why is it that we don't get involved in all the materialistic pursuits and trying to go after stuff, stuff, work, 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 money, 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 stuff, stuff, stuff? Because this is not the end game. This is a vapor. And then we live forever. Why are we focused on our resources, on unreached peoples? Because people exist forever. Their souls exist forever. We have a different value system. And Jesus walks in and he starts looking around. And this is not the woke, progressive Jesus bear hug that everybody preaches today. Jesus starts throwing tables around and chewing people out. What are you doing? What are you doing? I feel the holy anger of Christ. The righteous anger of Christ. When we're looking at some of the perversion in our culture today, it's not an anger at people who Christ died for, but it's an anger over sin and injustice, and there should be a fire in our hearts when we see what happens. Why do we get involved for, for the protection of the unborn? Because it's a travesty what we've allowed to happen, because blood cries out for justice, that's why. Why do we get involved in sexual slave trade stuff and try to stop all the perversion? Why should we be at our library saying, we're not going to allow you to do this kind of perverted story hour nonsense? Why are we saying we're not going to allow you to mutilate our children's bodies? Why do we do this? Because there should be a sense of righteous indignation that burns in our hearts. I remember reading about John Calvin back in his day. There was a whole sect of people that were, that were preaching permissiveness, sexual permissiveness, and they could just come to church on Sunday and take communion, and everything would be okay. And there's, a, there's an account where he literally crawled on top of the Lord's Supper and laid on the elements and laid on the blood in the body of Christ, and he said, over my dead body, are you going to come in here and treat what is holy as something that's not holy over my dead body? That, this is the kind of passion I'm talking about. Christ comes in 
and the court of the Gentiles was where Gentile people who were outside of the covenant could come and worship God, could come looking for fruit, come looking for answers, come looking for the true God. And that whole outside temple area was nothing but a den of thieves. Not only were people uh, getting ripped off, but but there was no opportunity for any Gentile people to encounter God. And Jesus, it said he came in the day before, and he just checked it out. I wonder what what was going on in the mind of Christ as he's just checking it out. And feeling the heart of God, understanding why the whole temple process was created in the first place. So sick and tired, he's probably going through all the stories of the prophets. Remember the prophets were always pointing out, he said, you people are bringing me your leftovers, God speaking. You're not bringing me your best animal for the sacrifice. You're bringing the one that's got three legs and can't see and it has mange and is one step out of the grave. That's what you're bringing to offer before me. God says, I'm sick of it. You're bringing me leftovers. You're bringing me your garbage. I'm sick of it. You go through the motions, but you rip, rip people off. You don't care for the orphan. You don't care for the widow. I'm sick of it. And then you build these mausoleums for all the prophets that you said were so great, but your forefathers are the ones who killed them. That's what Jesus said. You look so good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. This is Jesus speaking. Why is he doing this? Because he has a passion for the church. He has a passion for God's people. He cares about what happens on Sunday morning at Living Stones. This matters to him. And I just had this thought, what in the world would it have been like? If Jesus just walks on, on the stage quietly today and just looks at us, checks us out, is he happy? Is he concerned? As he looks through all the exterior and he looks right into our hearts, what's he see? What's he see in the church in America? Now, please hear me. I'm, this is not a condemning word. I believe he looks at us with eyes of love. He, I mean, you know, he is committed to his bride. In our imperfection and our brokenness and our sin and our shortcomings, he, his love for us never wavers one iota. Praise the Lord. But how many of you know his primary concern is always for his people? Because as the church goes, so goes our nation. Can I just tell you something? This is the most important meeting of the week when God's people come together to worship the Lord and to hear the word of the Lord, and then to go act on the word of the Lord. We are literally the salt and light for, for this nation, for the nations of the world. If we don't go, who will? If we don't share, who will? If we don't invest, who will? And so the Lord's looking. What's going on? Is this a religious show, or is this the real deal? And I want you to see something powerful, and I don't have time to get into the weeds on it, but there's two bookends that happen in this account before the tipping over of the te- temple or the tables in the temple, the cleaning of the temple. It's the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus walks into town the next day after scouting everything out, and he, he's hungry. And he walks up to a tree that looks gorgeous on the outside. The leaves are so full and green and beautiful. And he walks up to get fruit, and the Bible says he finds no fruit. And it also says that the tree, it was not in season for fruit. So you go, why was Jesus so hard on this tree? Well, I've read different things about that. Basically, at that time, there should have been blossoms and like an almond-like seed that's the precursor of the fruit that comes right after it. In other words, there, there should have been the signs of a great harvest to come. 
And Jesus was looking for a little bite. He was looking for some, you know, like a little packet of trail mix or something like that that he was going to uh, enjoy. He comes up to this beautiful tree, and he looks, and there was nothing happening, which means that there was not going to be a harvest from that tree. There's no fruit from that tree. And he curses it. And the next day, when the disciples are coming into town, after Jesus cleanses the temple, they notice that's the tree that Jesus cursed. Take a look at what it says here. Next, uh, verse 12. Uh, says, the next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed the fig tree in full leaf a little way off, and he went over to see if he could find any figs. There was only leaves. It was too early. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And his disciples heard him say it. Then look at verse 20. The next morning as they passed the fig tree that Jesus had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day, and he exclaimed, look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Now, I want you to see something. Jesus does not spend any time going into an explanation of what's the symbolism behind the tree, and why did he curse the tree, and why did he talk about the roots, and why was he looking for fruit? He doesn't go into any of the details. Look at what he says next. I want you to feel the weight of this. Verse 22, then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first, everybody say first, forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Now, let's just pause here. I think the reason he curses the tree, goes in, cleans out the temple, comes back, the tree is dead. What's he trying to say to us? I think that tree is a perfect picture of the counterfeit religion that was so much a part of Jesus' day. People coming to what looked like this beautiful green tree on the outside, but there was no fruit. How many of you know people are coming to us, the church, people who are supposed to be lovers of Jesus, and what are they looking for? They're looking for fruit. Give me something to eat. I, I need help. I need answers. I need solutions. I need wisdom. I need peace. I need God. Help! How many of you know they're looking at us to see if there's fruit? And sometimes people come out of church looking like pretty as a peacock, right? And we look all beautiful. But when people get close to us, listen, is there an abiding sense of God's presence on our lives? Do, do we know the Word of God? Do we carry the authority of God? Now, please hear me. I know immature believers can read a passage like that, and there's all, all, also been some bad teaching that, you know, we have the authority to go out and name whatever we want, claim whatever we want, and Jesus just attach Jesus' name on the end of it, and it's going to happen. How many of you have ever tried that? Now, let me just say this. If you don't know Christ and you're not walking in intimacy with God, and your life is not submitted to the Lord, go ahead and try that and come back and tell me how it works. This is not magic. People who move in, in the authority of the kingdom are people who are submitted to the king. They're people that have intimacy with God. How I many know at the end of the day, this is not about Ron Johnson running around praying bold prayers so God blesses me. This is about Ron Johnson partnering with the King of kings and Lord of lords to usher in the kingdom and to accomplish what's on God's heart. And so I want you to hear something here. Sometimes people say, well, pastor, you know, obviously we need to be asking if it's God's will. Well, yes. How I many know everything is about the will of God? And we're not concerned with producing things that are unwillful or against the will of God. But when God gives us scripture and when God shares shares his heart with us, he expects us to believe it. 
And while God, I believe, is sovereign over all things, I mean, you know, he's looking to partner with people. So when the Lord says, speak to the mountain, he's telling you, open your mouth and come into agreement and speak to situations and take authority over situations. Open your mouth and declare the authority that we have in Jesus' name. Now, there's a song that we sing that I know makes people nervous sometimes because it says, uh, you know, uh, I, I forget exactly. It's talking about miracles and the supernatural. And it says, I have the authority, but don't stop there. Jesus has given me. So our authority is always under the umbrella of his authority. It's always delegated authority. But here's what I want to challenge you with. Don't shrink back from the mega promise Jesus just shared with us in this passage. People say, well, you know, I know it says that, but, you know, he's not literally talking about mountains. Oh, I don't believe he's literally talking about mountains. Jesus never, ever in the Bible, you see a mountain cast into the sea, and I don't see any of the disciples casting mountains into the sea. I believe he's talking about mountain-sized challenges that we face, impossibilities. But nothing is impossible for the king of glory. And this is my point. Let's stop limiting him and shrinking these incredible promises of God down to little bite-sized manageable pieces that we feel comfortable with. I'm going to read the promise again because you just need to hear it. Please, please be staggered by the immensity of what Jesus just told us. Listen, listen to it again. Have faith in God. You can say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea. It will happen. But you must really believe it will happen. Have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But, 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 get your heart clean first. How many of you can, can believe that there's a power shortage at times in our lives because our hearts are full of unbelief, I mean, uh, full of unforgiveness. And so when the Lord's wanting to flow through us, we haven't done what Jesus told us. He said, before you try this, get your heart right. You got, you, you got to have a clean heart. You got to have a pure heart. You got to have a heart that hears what God's doing. You have to have a heart that feels what God feels. And then when you have a heart that feels what God feels, speak to the mountain. You know, I talked to somebody the other day, and they were saying, you know, Pastor, you know, you know, we, we always have to be submitted to the will of God. I said, absolutely, but here's what you don't do. Well, Lord, you know, if you feel like it, maybe you can do X, Y, and Z, if it be thy will. Not if it be thy will. We already know God works his will out. He's looking for us to agree with his promise. So I said, okay, we can go to healing. We don't have a 1,000% record on healing. Everybody we pray for gets healed. But God told us to pray for sick people, and when the person asked Jesus, are you willing, Jesus, Jesus said, I'm willing. So here's what I do. I default on, I am willing. And I want to keep praying for sick people and praying. And what do I pray? I, I declare the authority of God over their life, that Jesus is bigger than everything. That everything has to submit to him. Every demonic thing has to submit to him. And we speak it because that's what I believe therefore I have spoken. There's something powerful about what you declare with your mouth. And if you're shooting down your prayer before it, gets out, before it falls out of your mouth, there's not an anointing and there's no power on a prayer of unbelief. I think we're going to do a series coming up here on moving in the authority of the believer. Because while God 
sits in heaven, all-powerful. He has chosen to work through his church to accomplish his agenda. And so you know what we do when we launch the team out, as we have? We pray God's blessings over that. We, we make declarations over that trip. We thank God for what he's going to do. We thank God for the power of Jesus to lead and direct and save and heal and deliver. We thank God for salvation. We declare these things. Y'all with me this morning? God is not looking for green trees with no figs. He's looking for fruitfulness that abounds. So we have to abide in him and submit to him, and we have to get his vision for the world, and we have to get his value system in our hearts. It's called the kingdom of God. Amen? Stand to your feet. I won't pray for you guys this morning. John chapter 15, verse 7. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. That's talking about intimacy and abiding in Christ. You may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. Father, thank you for authority in your mighty name, the name of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray today for those that don't know you. There's salvation in the house, and we just, again, speak salvation over this place. If you're far from God, you don't have to be. The Lord is here and present now to save and to heal you and to introduce yourself to him. Lord, I thank you for the power to heal bodies today in Jesus' mighty name. And so, Lord, if we're dealing with sickness or illness today, I, I invite you to come forward. Let hands be laid on you. Let us pray in the mighty name of Jesus. If there's relational issues, if there's stress issues, emotional issues, whatever it is, that's that mountain in your life today, God has the authority to deliver you. So, Father, thank you your kingdom is coming. Thank you Christ's return is imminent. Thank you, Lord, that the coronation of our king has happened at his ascension. He's already seated high and at the right hand of the Father. But I thank you that the final coronation is to come. And so, Lord, we're forever prisoners of hope. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for being a ransom for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we just want to release the full benefit and blessing of what you died for this morning. Touch your people. Bless your people. Lord, help us to be a church uh, that's alive and full of the spirit of the living God. We love you. We honor you. We bless you now in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a shout of praise. We love you, Lord. We honor you. Thank you, Jesus.